0: Welcome back to the Money Makers Podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and this is the second part of my interview with author and fund manager Tim Price. In part one, we discussed his new book, Investing Through the Looking Glass, and what he sees as the disastrous consequences for investors of the global financial crisis and the policy response which it induced. In part two, we move on from the causes and symptoms to what investors should do with their money, in a world where nearly all the old foundations of sound money management no longer seem to apply. Well, let's go on to talk about some of the solutions to this, uh, to this crazy world as you describe it, um, where investors' returns have been extraordinarily good for the last few years, but the outlook is very, very poor for obvious reasons. There is no money to be made on, uh, on bank deposits, on, on things of even medium risk. Uh, essentially, you are um, in a very, very tough world. So now uh, let's come back to you. You come up with three solutions that you think people should think seriously about. Yeah, and these are tried three... and tested solutions, sure. and in your view, uh, are the best of what's available out there. Should we say they may not produce spectacular returns, but they are will at least be uh, 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 give you the best chance of preserving the value of. Well, I think that's
1: the f- the first thing to recognise that we're not necessarily in an environment of making capital gains. We should be perhaps as investors all more concerned about capital preservation. Uh, in real terms, so it's not so much about return um, on capital, but return of capital. I, I want to get my money back at the end of the day. But notwithstanding that, yeah, the, so the three solutions that, that I suggest, you know, absolutely make sense in this in this Alice through the the looking glass world, um, would include in no particular order, but they'd include value equity investments, defensive Ben Graham style equity from around the world on a completely unconstrained basis. Uh, the second would be a, a technical type of trading strategy known as systematic trend following, effectively momentum-based approach, so the polar opposite of value, but equally one that, that has a, a, a history of generating good returns, and particularly good returns when markets go south. And the third component part, which for anyone that's, that, that's known me for a while will be no surprise, is gold.
0: Right, well, let's just quickly go through those three in turn. Um... In your book, you, uh, you lay out the rationale for each of these approaches, um, but let's just start with the, with the value or what I think uh, is more properly called a sort of deep value approach. Um, and this is the idea, as you say, popularized by Ben Graham, the so-called father of security analysis, that uh, the, the most reliable way to make money over the longer term is to
1: buy things which are very cheap. And the fact that Ben Graham is the, the guy that was the first tutor of Warren Buffett, gives me some sense of comfort that if probably the world's most successful investor thrived on the back of this analysis, then it's probably got something to be said for it. So... But let's just define what it is. Yeah. So the the way I would define... We're talking about listed equities. Yeah. yeah. So the way I would define value equity would be bluntly is trying to find dollar bills that you can get for 40 cents. You're trying to identify high quality businesses, listed businesses from around the world. With high quality, principled management, shareholder-friendly management, and then pay be able to buy those securities at demonstrably less than you think they're actually worth. So you're buying a bit of discount to their true value. Well That sounds wonderful. Um, the question is, do they exist anymore? One of the effects of the
0: crisis and the fall interest rates has been that that's tended to push up the value of, of most uh, securities, anyway. Um,
1: Do they exist, these things anymore? Where are they? It's a great question. And you'd think that anyone anyone that's read Ben Graham would think, well, you know, after all the QE we've had, then then clearly there's no value on the table. But there is value on the table. You just have to look a bit further afield to find it. So, for example, in the fund that I run, uh, which is a value Ben Graham style value fund, we're finding no shortage of opportunities. But those opportunities are not in the usual places. They're in markets like Asia and particularly markets like Japan and Vietnam.
0: Okay, so now how do you actually access this? You're not going to be going out and buying individual shares in these countries. You may be, but that's not what you're No, that's, 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 not, that's, what you're no, that's doing.
1: not what we're trying to do. So we're trying to identify from around the world um, specialist Ben Graham-style managers that are, based on the ground, able to find these types of, of, of business opportunities, these listed stocks that are trading at a, a meaningful discount to their, their presumed inherent worth. And happily, they do exist, but they're, so they, they're somewhat off the beaten track. So they're in markets like small to mid-cap Japan, uh, Vietnam, which is a frontier market. There are pockets of them everywhere. But because of all the things you've cited, QE, stimulus, easy money or free money, effectively just be sloshing into stock markets globally, the chances are you won't find them in large cap, mega cap, uh, massively popular brand names. You'll have to go a bit further afield to find them. And what do you
0: expect? Can you make a, um, can you make a projection of what kind of returns you might make from these funds over some given period of time, other than in relative terms to what you're going to make elsewhere. In other words, you might make a little bit of money out of these things, but you still might not be making very much because it's a low return world.
1: There are two two studies of so-called net net stocks, which is the real deep value uh, opportunity within the value market. In other words, Businesses that are worth more dead than alive, effectively. So businesses that you can buy them, and if you if you sold everything relating to the business, liquidated the whole company, you'd make a very healthy profit. So they're being given away by the stock market. Two separate studies of so-called net-net stocks globally from the last 30 or 40 years, independent studies, um, they've indicated that if the market return, the stock market return over the long run is of the order of, say, 14 or 15%, then the returns available from net nets over the same period can be as high as thirty percent per annum. Right, but you're not expecting that the market is generally going to deliver 40 fourteen, fifteen. No, I know this, this particular I, level. I at the moment. No, for sure. So I absolutely wouldn't wouldn't say. <laughs> but I'm just saying is if if the market return is X, then getting a return you know perfectly a perfectly feasible prospective return of fifteen percent above X is not bad, even if X is zero. Of course. I suppose one other point i put you there
0: about deep value stocks is one of the effects of QE and ever ever relentlessly falling interest rates is so-called zombification of, uh, of corporate life around the world. In other words, companies aren't, don't go past anymore because… They're they kept, they kept
1: afloat by, by effectively free money. Absolutely. Right. So does that
0: not create the potential that a lot of these, where you find a stock that is cheap… <laughs> It actually turns out to
1: be a value trap. It's a zombie company that's been it's, it's a very good question. So there's the, one of the, the funds that we invest in, um, there's a chap called Sean Lenahan, who's based out in Tokyo. And he, he tells his story. He was, um, he's been out in Japan for 25 years or more. And he tells the story of uh, a company that they went to see recently. He went to see it with his analyst. And uh, they were traipsing through paddy fields for hours on end. They thought they were lost. They didn't even know if this company existed or not. Anyhow, they finally came to this company and they came to the headquarters of this company. And when they got to the corporate HQ, the company in question had put out a big banner outside the the building saying, welcome, and then the name of this fund, welcome. Um, And they thought, that's a bit odd. Uh, We don't normally get this kind of red carpet treatment. And the reason for the whole flag and the bunting and the the big ta-da was um, Sean and his team were the first fund managers or analysts to visit this company for 60 years, six or zero years. <laughs> now, this is, this is classic Ben Graham style, you know, value, deep value investments. In other words, people have completely given up on some of these markets. You are absolutely right to suggest that there will be value traps out there. But again, from our experience over the course of the last 18 months or so, actually putting money to work in, in Japan through these kind of specialist managers, there, There is a big story out there that is not being reported by the financial media. The financial media, it's also fair to say, get, get their own kicking in the book. Um, but the financial media have not reported what I would consider is one of the opportunities of our time. And that is, there is a whole raft of small to mid-cap companies out there in Asia, particularly in Japan, that are making record profits. So it's absolutely right to be fearful of so-called value traps But not every cheap stock is a value trap. Some of these companies, as I say, are reporting record profits, but you're not hearing about them because they're not called Toyota or Honda. And the stocks that people should be worried about are the exporters in Japan, where they're being, you know, uh, their prospects are being imperiled by a strong yen. So,
0: okay, just give us a very quick snapshot then of how how has your fund performed since you since you launched it?
1: Yeah, we launched the the VT price value portfolio in June um, last year. So far, in sterling terms, when nearly all of our money um, investors are in in sterling, uh, it's up about twenty two percent from launch. Right. With a big help from the post bounce, Brexit bounces, know, Brexit fall rather in the Brexit. Boundary. Brexit was not the worst thing we've ever experienced. Yeah.
0: Okay, so there's deep value. Let's move on to the second uh, item uh, on your list, which is, as you say, somewhat um, distinctly different. Which is essentially um, directional trading systems, which are a form of momentum. In other words. You're trying to buy things that are going up because they're going up uh, until they
1: stop going up. Or things that are, or shorting things that are going down for as long as they continue to go down. Right. So, so how the, do you go about doing that? So the way we, we access this, this strategy is through, again, through specialist managers. So um, a good example would be in the UK, would be there's a fund called Winton Futures, which is probably the largest trend following fund in the UK. It's run by a chap called David Harding. David Harding has at least two brains, um, so he's a very bright guy. And at his offices, um, we're reliably informed that when they turn the lights and the computers on in the morning, the rest of the, the postcode around his office or everyone else's lights dim. So they're using probably quite a few hundred megawatts of power to keep the, the, the computers online. But it's actually a very straightforward strategy, very straightforward to articulate. It's basically, you, and this is, this, this is what makes them interesting and fun and, and I think really valuable for, for private investors if they can access them. of fund managers try and predict the future and it's probably fair to say that most of them do a bad job. The 1% that don't are these guys and they're called systematic trend followers. What that effectively means is whenever their system, their process tells them that a given market has started to trend strongly, be they up or down in price, doesn't matter, then they'll simply make an allocation to that market and for as long as that trend lasts, they'll continue to add to that um, purchase or, 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 or short if it happens to be on the downside. And as and when the trend reverses, they'll be out. So they may well have a quite a tight stop loss attached to that uh, position. But on the basis that they're not shaken out of that position, they'll effectively go long a unit of X. And then for as long as the price of X rises, they'll continue to add incrementally units of X, perhaps adjusting the stop. And the canny thing about that is that they're adding to their position. They're adding to their exposure, but not necessarily adding to their risk. So rather than just buy low and sell high in a kind of passive sense, they're, they're pyramiding into positions and pyramiding out of positions in a way that maximizes their profits. So I cited Winton. So Winton, which is now one of the most conservative trend followers out there, because it has so much money under management, Winton, 2008 was the worst year in financial markets in living memory. In 2008, Winton after fees generated a 21 percent return. Most investors would have bitten your arm off to get anything like that in 2008.
0: Right, so the, the, the problem there is that they're not generally open to retail they're investors. Not, they're not not
1: necessarily accessible for retail investors. Now, happily, there are a few exceptions. There is a retail uh, vehicle whereby you can get access to Winton, but even that has a minimum investment threshold of £30,000. So it is difficult, but there are, happily, some what are called USITS funds, sort of pan-European marketable retail funds that, is, that are slowly coming to market that are making them accessible at lower levels, say £1,000 or so.
0: The problem in this particular field is, is there is a similar problem, though, to buying a, an ordinary or conventional uh, investment management fund, which is that the key to the success of these uh, of these um, of these trading strategies is the quality of your mousetrap, basically. You've got to have the experience built into your algorithms to, to, and the computers to track. And, and you
1: also, to be fair, and some want... will do better than others. Yeah, and you also want a manager who's been around the block a few times. So, a friend of mine, and I think we cite this in the book, There's a friend of mine um, who has a small trend following fund and he did a study of, it crunched the numbers on the best funds that he could find in history. So he, and he had fairly stringent criteria to make the final cut. I think there were 11 funds that made the final cut. What he wanted to see was funds that had a 20-year track record. So a 20-year track record of audited returns, which is difficult enough because most managers have retired by, by then, or at least any that have stayed at the same fund have. And the second requirement he wanted was 20% annualized return over 20 years, which when you actually look at the industry is virtually impossible. So a 20-year track record of 20% annualized returns may sound achievable, but he only found 11 funds that did it. Berkshire Hathaway, for example, which isn't even technically a fund, it's a holding company, they just squeaked in at number 11. So that tells you the caliber of, of, of these fund managers. And to cut to the chase... Of those eleven world-class funds, world-performing funds, six of them were trend followers. Right. So it works. It works, but you need, you know, as Mrs. Beaton might say, first find your manager. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's the hard part for, for most people. But it sure. is it's, the point you're making is
1: they are, they are out there. It's worth looking. It's hard worth looking for to them. find them if you can find them. Sure. And that, to be fair, there are also sources, and I think I think we cite some in the book where you can get more information on that on that trend on that uh, strategy.
0: Just while we're on that, I mean, what are, people often mix that up or there's a sort of conf, a conflation of of um, understanding about how that relates to hedge funds. I mean, one or two of the funds in that list you give are actually hedge funds, but they're doing directional trading strategies within the hedge fund structure. So it's not hedge funds per se. That yes, I mean, that's, they're yes, it's worth making... Because you're not a big fan of hedge for funds. For sure, yes. You.
1: So that's absolutely fair that the trend-following funds are a subset of the hedge fund universe, but the hedge fund universe, the term hedge fund now is so widely used and abused it doesn't mean anything anymore at one point at the start of you know the the hedge fund you know life cycle back in the 40s the term meant something and it meant hedging risk but as so many chances of of, and Johnny come lately's have come into the market the term is now it has no real real meaning anymore but within the sector trend uh, the systematic trend followers is a quite a Quite a disciplined strategy, so it's a. I think it's it's fair to describe it as a, as a as a very small subset of the overall universe. Just one more point of
0: that. I mean, these things are not infallible. I mean, we know the example of um, of Man Group, which has a which has a yeah their AHL, a strategy, their AHL, AHL program Haring, is their that.
1: AHL program is is one of the most well known in the world. But it doesn't work every year, and it, and trend followers. It's absolutely fair to say have. Uh, recently come out of a three to four year, you know, period of sub subpar performance. But in their defense, again, you know, when when a conventional fund, uh, i.e. a sort of stock fund, long-only equity fund, has a bad period, it loses 50%. When in a year, say, when a trend-following fund has a bad year, we'd take Winton, for example, when Winton has a bad year, it loses 3%. So let's get things in, you know, let's put things in perspective. One other thing about
0: that particular strategy, which I think is interesting, I was reading a, a, a watch actually, a very interesting video with Jim Simons
1: on uh, on YouTube. Yes, he's the head of Renaissance Technologies, Renaissance. which is one of the largest and most one successful. of the first and
0: one of the most successful <laughs> to follow strategy. And he said what he discovered over the years was that he was quite good at this. But he then created a, a firm that was completely different in almost every respect to your average fund management firm in the way it was run, in the way people were incentivized, and so on and so forth, because. Um, I think you would agree, you certainly make the point in your book that actually the way that most fund management firms are run are not conducive to making uh, the, the best possible returns. For no, they take their money the and run businesses. artists. Exactly. Okay. So that's, that's the second check. Now the third one brings us on to gold, a subject on which uh, excites extraordinary emotions on all sides um, in my experience. At one extreme you have, uh, you have the gold bugs, the, the sort of people who believe that gold is the answer to everything. Uh, and on the other hand, you have people that are not not excluding Warren Buffett as it happens who say that people who believe in gold uh, are chasing sort of fool's money it's a, it's, it's not an, it's not an investment that you should consider so what is your case for putting some of your money into gold? I don't think you suggest you put all your money into gold no, but for some sure. of your money into gold um, The core of the argument is that gold is a store of value it will preserve the value of your of your money over time in a way that any kind of monetized asset won't do is that the yeah
1: that's, that's absolutely fair so you now you say you know gold gold isn't the single answer and that's absolutely right because there's also silver of course as well um so i think i think <laughs> as far as precious metals are concerned particularly the monetary metals namely gold and silver the reason why i attach an above normal degree of um relevance to them as assets if you like at the moment is you know we're living through an unprecedented monetary experiment and that experiment I suspect is going to end badly for paper assets and by paper assets I specifically mean currencies so uh, I'm now taking out of my wallet one of my props that I, I use at most uh, client meetings I'm seeing someone for the first time and you'll have seen one before but it's the infamous 100 trillion dollar note from Zimbabwe now this is a note with I'm just trying to see that's 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 zeros after the one um, this uh, sadly is the fate of every is the ultimate fate of every paper currency and it has been since since paper currency was ever used um i think first by the chinese the problem with all currencies particularly unbacked currencies is they're all going to fail we just don't know quite when um and the 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 rationale behind gold for example is it's never failed, so it's been money good for let's say 5,000 years, and it's then fashionable for the sort of court economists of our time to say, Oh, well, it's a 5,000 year old bubble. At which point, you start to question the validity of having economists. But the reality is, gold is rare, it's unique, it's beautiful. There are all these characteristics that made it money good, you know, for thousands of years. And the single best thing it has going for it as a characteristic is you can't print the stuff, whereas, as we found from Messrs Carney and Draghi, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And Yellen uh, and Bernanke is that, you know, there are no limits to what central banks can do in relation to money creation. There will come a point, I suspect, in the perhaps not too distant future when the marginal investor just starts to twig that, you know, there's going to be no end to this process, whether it's the next iteration is helicopter money or whatever nonsense comes out of the likes of Harvard and, and Yale as recommendations, as policy recommendations. We're so far in now that there's probably no going back. So if you have concerns a about the depreciation of paper currency, almost universally, and if you have concern about systemic risk, about the the sanctity and safety of the financial system, gold is the perfect way of hedging against those.
0: Right. So, but let's let's be clear that the objective of putting some money into gold. Is it's just to protect your purchasing power policy.
1: over the over the longer run. It's not a way terms. to make money necessarily. You might make money, but it's not a way. No, to make yeah, the, the the making of money is incidental. It's it's yeah. preserving the purchasing power of what you have. Your motivation is to
0: preserve the the value of what you have exactly. And so, when we had the big run up in the gold price, there's also speculation there that swells around the gold market, and particularly uh, in the, you know between 2010 and 2012, gold shot up very significantly in dollar terms. Uh, and everybody started piling in. A lot of uh, punters started piling in without really knowing what they were doing. Gold can also get overvalued, in, oh for sure, oh, so as
1: we now know it was the case in you know 2011.
0: What you're suggesting? Let's put all this all together. Then is you have your, you have a uh, a portion of your assets in gold or some form? What form of gold would you have? Them in? We'd
1: We'd recommend I'd recommend a combination of the physical bullion itself and then also a portfolio of. of um, Significant mining interests, equity interests. So the large the large miners basically. Okay, so we've got the chunk gold. Uh, what, what typically out of your kind of 100%, if we're, if we're just in very broad would terms, be of the order of 20 25%. 20,
0: as much as that. Yeah. This, that would vary in terms of the conditions of the time. But in these extreme in, in conditions. Right now,
1: that's that's how we're allocated in terms of our private client portfolios. Yeah.
0: 20 25% in yeah. gold or gold related. Okay, and then. Uh, beyond that I don't suppose that you're recommending people should have much money in bonds any sort. yeah
1: we've got we've got a tiny allocation about 10% in objectively credit worthy bonds but there are virtually none of them so it's 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 such a tiny market that it you know it, it, it didn't warrant a chapter in the book because it's the bonds that we're currently buying for clients are sovereign and quasi-sovereign bonds issued in the few remaining creditor countries of this world so in other words at a country level, they're issued by the likes of Hong Kong, Qatar, Singapore, the UAE. You know those kind of those kind of um, countries, either well-run Asian economies or resource-rich Gulf states. But um, you know, in in the greater scheme of things, you know there may be some way yet within the bond rally. But in the bigger picture, uh, you know bonds are, are not bonds are not going to make anybody rich anytime soon. And if they do, then I don't want to live in the world in which that's happening.
0: Okay, so there's your bond portion dealt with, um, and then for the rest, so how do you divide it up? You divide it up between those two strategies. It's you between mentioned?
1: the other two. So yeah, for a typical private client portfolio, then it m- might be as much as forty-five or fifty percent in value equity. Um, if that seems high, it's because we're we're doing it on a safety first basis. So we're not we don't we don't expect the value of that portion of a portfolio to fall in line with the general market as and when the general market falls. You know, it's, it's unrealistic to think that if the S&P 500 or the FTSE were to drop by 20% or 30%, they will be completely unscathed. But because we're consciously going and deliberately going after the cheapest uh, but best quality assets we can find from, from listed stock markets, it would seem fa- unfair to believe we're going to go down one for one in line with the market when it turns. So we're expecting to, to have what Ben Graham used, where he, what he called a margin of safety to those positions.
0: And just to be clear on this point, these are, you invest in these things through fund managers, I, well, funds run by well, fund it, managers. Yes, either
1: specialist funds or in some cases individual stocks. So I'm quite a fan of diversified holding companies, of which Berkshire Hathaway is probably the best known. But we're also invested in a fund, in a in a diversified holding company called Fairfax Financial, for example, which is yeah. run by someone who is called the Canadian Warren Buffett. Yeah. And so then, your final allocation will be to these uh, trend followers. Yes, and that might be, a, say, as high as say twenty percent or so again of a balanced portfolio. So, that, I guess the point being that we're we're not saying any one thing has the answer, but we're just trying to diversify. We think prudently as best we can in what is an extraordinary financial environment. And what
0: attraction kind of you're having with this
1: kind of approach, in the sense that um,
0: many investors, that we know, are a very confused about what's going on, b uh, very risk averse. They say they're risk averse. They're putting money into things that have either gone up a lot recently or in a lot of money going into absolute return funds and things like that. Um, but what kind of traction are you getting with your particular message? Does Is it actually playing to an audience at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, there's, a let's say, a self-selected audience to whom this this story appeals. So it is not, a, a, if you like, a mass affluent market, and certainly in relation to the wealth management business, <clears throat> the, the proposition is, is, is targeted at people who have more than a quarter of a million pounds to invest. So that's, that's not a sort of mom-and-pop offering necessarily. Within the context of the fund, however, the, the value fund, that's a retail proposition, so that can be bought for as little as a £1,000. So that's a different type of market. Okay, so now, and then just going back to the sort of broader picture,
0: um, one of the paradoxes about the, the huge build-up in debt and so on uh, the last few years is that the policies that the... That the, um, that the central bankers and others are pursuing makes borrowing appear much cheaper and much easier than it has ever been in the past. And so it's actually having the effect of actually stimulating more debt rather than, than reducing the amount of debt. Do you think, therefore, if one took the example of property, which is a real asset, people say, uh, is it a sensible thing for people to take out a mortgage at 3% for the next fixed for the next five years or something uh, to buy a property in in uh, in the UK,
1: it is. If you, it's like any investment. It is. It's worth making that. Well, firstly, property, yes, is an asset. But for most people, it's something slightly more meaningful. It's actually also their home. And I'd say certainly for a primary residence, that's not an investment. That's that's where you live. So that's that's not something you want. You should mark to market every day. But with that sort of disclaimer aside, yes, if if you're looking at property as an asset, like any other asset, the most important characteristic is how much you pay for it when you buy it. So if it's possible to buy property uh, comparatively cheaply, uh, and especially if you can lock in a very low competitive mortgage rate, why not? I'm just sceptical. I mean, I live in London, as, as I guess you do. Uh, I'm sceptical there's an awful lot of value in the London property market at the moment.
0: Well, Tim, thank you very much. I think we've, had, we've covered quite a lot of ground in this, uh, in this conversation. Um, I don't know how you want to end up by saying, I mean, do you think... Essentially, what you're saying, I think, is that people obviously need to be very defensive-minded in the way they uh, think about the future. That's obviously the way you invest yourself and, and uh, your kind of commercial proposition. Uh, but are you actually? Do you What do you think the odds are that we are going to have another two thousand eight crisis or something similar in terms of its scale and uh, uh, an impact?
1: On- I, I honestly don't know. And I say, so I think that the problem with people in finance is that they tend to be very hubristic and very overconfident in their predictions. So I I hope that if nothing else, I'm not displaying those same characteristics, but I'd give the last word to Lily Tomlin, who I think I give a, a mention to right at the start of the book, which is I think things are going to get a lot worse before they get worse.